The white clapboard church built in 1830 set facing the village green. It was a classic New England town. The owners of the local apple orchard were members of this congregation. A retired New Testament professor sang in the choir, and even the university president sometimes showed up in worship. This well-clad New England group of Christians in the congregational tradition sat not in brown pews like these, but in white pews that each had a door on them that would latch behind you. My father was always a bit nervous. They wouldn't let him out if he didn't give quite enough. But it was such an idyllic, beautiful New England congregation, you could almost picture George Washington worshiping there. I was a student pastor, and the worship service had just concluded, and it was that awkward spring Sunday where you set the clocks forward, and I was standing there at the back of the church during the closing hymn, waiting for those distinguished congregants to come out for the farewell handshake, when suddenly this lady came rushing in from the village green through the front door of the church. She was disheveled with long brown hair and carrying a newborn baby, and I looked at her inquisitively. Am I too late? she asked. For what? I asked. To have my baby done up. I pointed to the clock. It was noon. The worship was over. We didn't know she was coming that day with her newborn to have her baptized. For some reason, I have never forgotten that lady who was so eager to have her baby done up, but who had forgotten that it was daylight savings time. Anyone with a new baby knows what an effort it is to get to church on time and how eager we are at that moment to receive God's blessing on this new life. You know, some churches practice baptism with a little sprinkling of water on the infant's forehead, and some practice immersion or a full dunking when the child or the adult is of an age where they can determine whether he or she wants to immerse his or her life in the love of God. Frankly, I don't think God cares which way we do it. That lady was right. All of us need to be done up. And Jesus evidently thought he needed it as well. This is shocking to some of us. Why does Jesus need to be done up? All four Gospels tell us that Jesus was baptized, which is a clue that it was generally believed that it happened. But he wasn't baptized either as an infant or as a teenager as the normal rite of passage. Scholars speculate that Jesus had been an adult already for probably 18 years when he was lowered into the waters of the River Jordan by John the Baptist. So why? What prompted this moment? When Jesus came to John to be baptized, what did he possibly have to say that he was sorry for? We can scarcely imagine Jesus repenting with words like, well, you know, as a carpenter, I was always cutting corners and cheating the customer. Now I'm going to turn my life around and become a great teacher and healer. Those standing in line with Jesus for baptism that day came with a variety of sins they needed forgiven. Overconsumption of alcohol, infidelity to a spouse, skirting around the tax laws. They came to turn their flawed human lives around and follow God. 
But what about Jesus? What mistakes had he made as a teenager? What personal foibles and insecurities inhibited him? What did his friends report was annoying about him? Sometimes you and I focus so much on how Jesus was God's son, a divine expression of perfect love, that we forget that the whole point was that he was human, like us. What do you imagine, if you were to imagine, what was going on between Jesus' life between the age of 12, when his parents lost him on the way to the temple, and this age of maybe 30, when he shows up in the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist? Isn't it kind of funny that the Bible leaves that part out? Was it just so ordinary, so human? A recent story on the Moth Radio Hour featured a young man named Josh who graduated from Boston University and moved out to Santa Monica, California to take a new job as the manager both of a hotel and an apartment complex, and he lived in the apartment complex. One day, the FBI shows up at Josh's office. They want Josh's help in apprehending a fugitive who's living there in the building. Who is it? Well, it's Charlie and Carol, his next-door neighbors. Josh is so confused. When had Carol and Charlie ever done anything to hurt anyone? After all, Charlie was the guy who bought him a bicycle light to keep him safe when he rode his bike at night. And Charlie was the guy that was always going downstairs to help the elderly lady on the first floor. And Carol and Charlie, for five years, had brought him a Christmas present every Christmas and the year that he forgot to write a thank you note, they brought him another gift, a box of stationery. <laughs> but it turns out that Charlie wasn't Charlie, but Whitey Bulger, the Boston Mafia boss, on the top of the FBI's most wanted list, a fugitive who had committed horrific crimes. Even as Josh helps the FBI apprehend his neighbor, he keeps replaying the many acts of kindness he has observed over the past five years from his friend Charlie. You know, sometimes we want to see humanity as either good or bad, but in reality, the worst of us are capable of great acts of kindness and compassion, and the best of us are capable of evil. To be human is to have the option of how to live our lives. Maybe Jesus gets in line with those other ordinary humans because he is keenly aware of his own humanity. Maybe this is the moment in his adult life when he finally realizes that not only is he a regular person with struggles and flaws, but he is also God's person. Mark tells us that when Jesus came up out of the rivers of the water, he heard a voice, You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. And he saw a dove descending upon him, and the curtain between heaven and earth was ripped. This is how Mark introduces us to Jesus, not with shepherds and angels, not with wise men offering gifts to a baby in a stable. Mark sees this as the new beginning not only for Jesus, but for us and for the whole world. This is the moment when the carpenter from Galilee realizes he is God's person. 
There's a new translation of the Bible that was recently produced by a scholar named David Bentley Hart. He has attempted to write a more literal translation of the New Testament, one that is not written in light of the story of our faith that we all now know, but is simply a translation of the original language as best as we can find it. When he, Dr. Hart gets to this passage about the baptism of Jesus, he describes the moment differently. Instead of saying that they preached a baptism of repentance of sin, he says that it was a baptism of the heart's transformation. And instead of saying that God told Jesus he came up from the water and, and, and then when he came up, God said, with you, Jesus, I am well pleased. Instead, he says that God says to Jesus while he was still standing there dripping wet, in you, I delight. Could it be that this is the moment when Jesus became aware that God was changing his heart, that God was absolutely delighted in him? Fred Craddock was once traveling through Atlanta, Georgia, and he stopped to have a light lunch with an acquaintance, a businessman that he had just recently met. The two of them were just chatting casually about their lives, and he asked something about Fred, and Fred asked something about him, and they were just, you know, chattering when the man said, you know, I, I grew up in the church, but I... I haven't been to church. Why? Well, I don't go to church anymore. And then he said, well, what do you do, Fred? And Fred said, well, I've spent my whole life in the church. I've been a preacher or a teacher. That's, that's kind of all I've done. And the businessman said to Fred, I guess I just came to doubt. And Fred said, you mean the existence of God? And the man said, oh, no, no, no. I, I came to doubt what the church was saying. And Fred said, well, what did the church say that you doubted? And the man said, I think I came to doubt that it was possible that a person could be truly forgiven and begin a new life. It's true, Fred said. It's true, you can. Really, said the man, do you believe it? Maybe those of us inside the church also doubt. Maybe we too doubt if our hearts can be transformed. If God could ever look at us and say, in you I delight. At the beginning of this new year, we wonder if our hearts are still pliable, if we too might change and become a new person, if there is still time for us to be done up. You know, there are different kinds of new beginnings. There's one that I think of as kind of the false start, where, you know, you start a new diet on Monday, but on Wednesday, the next-door neighbor comes over with a plate of piping hot homemade brownies, and, I mean, you don't want to offend her. <laughs> or, you know, I go to the Y over on Troost, and in January, you cannot get a spot on the treadmill. It is so crowded in there. But in February, you can get whatever piece of equipment you want. 25% of us who set New Year's resolutions have already broken them, and today is only January the 7th. These are the new beginnings that I call false starts. 
We've got good intentions, but little follow through. And then there's another kind of new beginning that I think of as kind of like what we just did in welcoming new staff. They are new beginnings on the outside about the exterior things. So you start a new job or you buy a new house or you begin your freshman year at college. And this week I was absolutely thrilled when we had new staff in the building and such joy and service they will bring to us. But then there's another kind of beginning, a third kind. And I think of this new beginning as kind of a hidden beginning. Maybe no one knows that it's happened but you. Maybe even you don't recognize it the moment it happens. Only later do you look back and realize, you know, that was the moment when my heart shifted and I wasn't ever the same again. The way Mark tells it, this is what happened to Jesus. No one else saw the dove. No one else heard the voice from heaven. But Jesus no longer built cabinets at the workshop in Galilee. He was propelled now by another purpose. The love of God empowered him to go a new direction, to live a new life, because finally Jesus realized he wasn't just a guy. He was God's holy one, the one in whom God delighted. Maybe Jesus became human like us so that we might become divine like him. My husband came pounding up the stairs at 6.15 in the morning, out of breath, startling me awake. He had been out for his crack of dawn run with the guys, and after he peeled off from the group and headed for home, turning the corner alone to come down our street, he said, I was attacked by an owl. Later, we learned that the same owl had attacked our neighbor, another guy crazy enough to run at 5 a.m. And then we read in the paper that lots of folks had been encountering this owl in the dark morning hours of their walks and runs. And now you can find Dave out running with a headlamp. <laughs> and some of our neighbors are walking with tennis rackets in their hands, prepared to fend off the owl. Because, you know, we do not expect what belongs up there to come down here. The doves, the owls, they belong in the trees. But the text says that there is a rip, a tear, a breach between heaven and earth, and the divine presence comes among us. We are startled awake. We are called to become new. The divine love of God refuses to keep its place in the sky. It invades our hearts. And you know, being done up does not always require water. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus comes proclaiming a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And according to the Apostle Paul, we who are baptized have put on Christ. Have we? A friend of mine told me about an epiphany she experienced midway through her 30-something year marriage. She and John raised three sons, all successful in their own right now. Along the way, John and Cheryl, they faced the typical challenges of marriage. You know, figuring out what to do when there isn't enough money to pay all the bills on time, 
or her feeling like all the household chores fell to her while he was out playing golf on Saturdays. In general, they, they got along well as a couple. They had good communication skills. They even enjoyed date night a couple of times a month. But she always felt like John might leave her. After all, she was not perfect. She tried to be a good partner, but she was never sure it was good enough. Then one day they argued. She doesn't remember about what. What she remembers is that in the middle of the argument, he said to her, it's okay. I forgive you. I love you. She said that after the argument ended and he left the room, she remembers exactly where she was standing next to the dresser when she was overcome with the most amazing revelation. He loved her, not because of anything she had done. He just loved her. It was not in her control. She couldn't make him stop loving her. His love came as a gift he had decided, and it was for keeps. He was staying. He delighted in her not because she was perfect, but because he loved her accepting that she was immersed in his love, her heart shifted. No one else saw it, not even her husband. It was like a dove, a voice from heaven. Who knows when such a beginning will happen for any of us. I suspect you have had a few of those along the way yourself. Who knows? We might be having one now.